Right, okay. Oh, well, thanks very much for sort of sharing with us. Um, actually, earlier, when Robert sort of said that uh, it had fallen to me to, to lead our service, he, he picked his words wrongly because, if it, you know, those of you who know me will know that I am incapable of leading a service. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm just not that sort of person. I want to worship the Lord, I want to preach his word. But services are not my cup of tea. And, and, and here we're, we're very much more casual. We're respectful before the Lord, yes. Yeah. But we're very much more casual than having religious services. In fact, yeah. I sort of found that Jesus has rather made me unreligious. I used to be religious. But when I got converted and met Jesus, um, I sort of found that religion soon got kicked out of me. Mm. Um, I'll give you an example because I mean, sort of Jesus is not austere. So often, when you think of religious services, uh, like for instance, some time ago we were uh, we watched Blue Peter, believe it or not, and they were doing a report on Russia and they did a report on the church. So of course, what do they aim for the Russian Orthodox Church? You see, and of course, there they all are. It's dark in the church. There's all the candles going. There's not a smile in the place. You know, and of course, this is this is what so many people think Christianity is. And of course, that's exactly what Christianity isn't. But it's far more real than that. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was a. Uh, speaking at a church and sometimes I travel around to to speak at churches particularly if it's on a Sunday uh, sometimes the church has the misfortune to make the mistake of asking me to leave the service <laughs> so, so I'll always give it a crack I mean I always warn them saying I don't know how you do it because I don't go to this church so don't expect me to do it how you do it I mean I'll just do it whatever seems right you see and on that particular occasion, they're having a communion after the service. And they said, would you leave that? And I said, you're right, I'll give it a crack. <laughs> and uh, what they did there is they sort of had the wine or the Ribena and sort of that went round. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. and, and they had these two baskets with rolls in, you see. And, you know, the two blokes came forward and took them down each side of the building. And that, you know, and sort of people sort of took a bit off and ate it. Anyway... We sort of did, um, we did the bread first, and they sort of went round, and then it came back, and everyone had had the bread. And so what I tried to do is to make the point that as lots of the bread had come back, but only a certain amount had been used, I thought, well, this is a good idea. Let's, let's see that this symbolises the fact that Jesus, who is the bread of life, that there's loads of him for everyone. He hasn't been all used up, and that anyone who wants to get saved can through him. And so what I thought, right, is I'll show them how much bread there is left. There's loads of... So I picked the baskets up, tilted them over, and about ten rolls fell out and rolled down, down the building. And I was on my hands and knees picking them up. But somehow it didn't matter. I mean, people laughed, but it, it, it was good. No one was embarrassed or anything like that. We were worshipping the Lord. So I'm just saying that, so as you don't actually expect a service out of me. And there we are, we have a complaint already. <laughs> so, um, I see the little baby is... Has had enough already. That's, that reminds me of a, a guy who was preaching at a church and he'd been struggling through his sermon for about 20 minutes and there was a baby, you know, in its mum's arms and this baby was bawling, re really giving it some, as they say. And, and, and the louder he preached, the louder the baby cried. Now, eventually, the mother, halfway through the sermon, just got up and was walking out of the service. Anyway, he called after her, that's the preacher, and he said, it's all right, madam, your, your, your baby's not disturbing me. And she turned around and she said, yes, but you're disturbing my baby. <laughs> and just kept going. <laughs> anyway, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's super. 
two baptisms tonight and uh, in the bath upstairs that that is going to be fun we've done it before Sheila over here was the first to be baptized upstairs in the bathroom and uh, so it sort of fell to me really to you know I thought well, well what should I talk about because I mean we weren't going to have our our normal stuff tonight we're we're doing a series at present I thought no that's silly special night tonight so let's do something a bit special and uh, anyway, I've got about three quarters of an hour, really, to sort of, you know, because this has all been a great rush, you see. And I, I thought, well, what shall we do? And I thought, well, we could go over what baptism stands for, but then the two of you, you know what that stands for. In that sense, that area has been covered for you. And uh, so I thought, well, I mean, baptism, obviously, you're both being baptised because you are going to follow Jesus. You have committed yourself to Jesus you've decided to follow him so baptism obviously is all about Jesus it's all about him and so I thought well tonight I'll talk about Jesus oh that seemed like a really good idea I mean it's all about him and uh, also I thought well I mean baptism it's when you've come to know the Lord you're new Christians all right and when people get converted they get baptized so in in some ways to be baptised is kind of a witness to Jesus. It's saying, I'm following Jesus. So what I thought I'd do tonight is, well, there's something kind of evangelistic here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pretend that you are all naughty non-Christians, you see. And it's very rare that we get a chance to do something. I mean, so maybe some of you are non-Christians, I don't know. But I'm going to pretend that you are all <coughs> naughty non-Christians who don't know Jesus. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go for you. All right? I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to say what I'd say if I had a room full of people who didn't know Jesus. And so what I'm going to start off by saying is this, that the thing with Jesus, and this is so very unfair, is that I think more silly things are said about him than anyone else. Mm. And uh, I heard a story once about a sad man having a talk with a happy man. And they were having a talk about Christianity and about religion in general. And eventually the sad man said to the happy man, he says, well, look, you're, you're wasting your time. I, I don't even believe in Jesus. I don't even believe that Jesus ever existed, and I don't want to hear any more about it. Anyway, the happy man saw his opportunity, and he said, well, all right, but how do you account for all the stories we hear about him? How do you account for the New Testament? And the sad man looks at him and says, well, his disciples made them up. The happy man said, whose disciples? <laughs> now, that's a classic example of the way that such silly things get said about Jesus. Now, what I want us to look at tonight is that when we come to Jesus, this person, that there are only three things that could be true about Jesus. There are three alternative versions of what may or may not be the truth about him. And I'm going to show you tonight how, in fact, we can know for certain what the actual truth is. But we've got to look at all three things. So the first thing that Jesus could be, and this is going to be logical, and you'll see what I mean by that, is that the first thing that Jesus could possibly be is a myth. And indeed, there are people who don't believe that Jesus ever existed. In fact, in Marxist states across the world, 
The official Marxist teaching on this, because remember the Marxist state have an official teaching on everything, because it's state control from the top down. Now, the official teaching of the Marxist states across the world about Christianity is that Jesus never existed. This is their position. They just say, straightforwardly, Jesus never existed. He was a myth. And yet, we need to understand that outside of Marxist states, and we can understand why they say that, because it's competition, and they don't believe in competition to their beliefs. But outside of the Soviet bloc, no serious historian doubts the existence of Jesus. There is no serious historian who would say that Jesus did not exist. In fact, historically, what people think is that the only source of information we have about Jesus is the Bible. Totally untrue. Our main information about Jesus comes from the Bible, yes. But we have historical information about Jesus which ranged far outside of the writings of the Bible. In fact, we have as much historical evidence for the existence of Jesus as we do for King Harold and as we do for, for Queen Boadicea. These historical characters are not in doubt and neither is Jesus. For instance, there's a guy called Josephus. Now, he was a Jewish historian and his historical works are accepted today by historians as being accurate. Much of what we know of the time he lived in was from him. All right. Now, he was born in AD 37, within a few years of the death of Jesus. And he wrote quite a lot of history. And in one of his books, he refers to James, quote, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. Josephus was fully aware that Jesus existed and that people thought, some people thought, that Jesus was the Christ. Now, a guy called Tacitus is one of the greatest of the Latin historians, the Romans. And he lived in the first part of the second century AD, so he was a hundred years after the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, he wrote a big book called Annals. And in that particular history, he went on about the events when Rome burned down. Do you remember, 64 AD, Rome burned down while Nero fiddled. Now then, what happened was that the rumour went out that Nero himself did it, that Nero had gone mad and that he did it. Now, speaking of this event, uh, Tacitus says this, and I'm quoting from the annals. He said, Hence to suppress the rumour, because Nero was being blamed, hence to suppress the rumour, he, that is Nero, falsely charged with the guilt and punished with the most exquisite tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who were hated for their enormities. Christus, and that's the Latin version of Christ, Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Now there we have a fully accredited Latin historian whose works are accepted by modern historians today as being accurate. He lived a hundred years after the death of Jesus and here we have him writing about Jesus. And what he says, uh, put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea at the time of the reign of Tiberius is exactly what the Bible says. So here we see uh, evidence for the existence of Jesus outside of the Bible. 
Anyway, there's another guy, Romans, Suetonius. Now, he wrote The Life of Claudius. Do you remember the uh, BBC Two did a big thing, I, Claudius? Do you remember? <laughs> well, this is the guy. And Suetonius wrote his story, Life of Claudius. And this was about 100 AD, so just 70 years or so after the death of Jesus. Now, he wrote this. Since the Jews were continually making disturbances, and of course, remember, the Romans didn't like... I mean, he's talking here, so we're going to see about the Jews who become Christians, and the Romans did not like disturbances. Since the Jews were continually making disturbances at the instigation of Christus, there he is again, Christ, since the Jews were continually making disturbances at the instigation of Christus, he, that is Claudius, expelled them from Rome. So we have here a clear fact that Claudius expelled the Jews who followed Christus, Jesus, expelled them from Rome, alright? And in Acts 18, and the first two verses, Acts in the New Testament, we read this, Before long, Paul found a Jew called Aquila, a native of Pontus. This man had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had issued a decree that all Jews should leave Rome. Uh, so here we have it. Again, we see that ancient historians confirm completely the existence of Jesus and also the truth of the Bible. But thus far, what we have established beyond doubt is this. Jesus existed. He is no myth. The person Jesus is historical. So then, having dispensed with the possibility number one, that Jesus was a myth. We must move on. There are only two possibles left. We must now move on to the second one. If he wasn't a myth, well then, was he mad? Was he mad? Now, that may surprise you, but follow me. Many, many people say that Jesus was a good man. Many, many people say that he was the most marvellous teacher religiously and ethically that mankind has ever had. There are many who will even say that he is a prophet. So many, many people who aren't Christians, they don't believe that Jesus was God, they don't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, but they believe that he was the greatest moral, spiritual and religious teacher who has ever existed. And yet, here is the problem. This very man, Jesus, who they think is the greatest teacher who ever who, lived, and yet no more than that. This self-same man claimed to be God. You see, people don't realise that Jesus, historically, is unique amongst religious teachers. Because Jesus, unlike so many of the others, did not come as a prophet proclaiming a way to God. Jesus came claiming to be the only way. He said, I am the way. He said, no one comes to the Father but by me. That the teaching of Jesus was totally exclusive. He said he was the only way. And whereas other religions and other beliefs will give Jesus a place, Jesus gives their religions and their teachers no place whatsoever. Because he says, I am the only way there is. And he claimed this because Jesus believed and Jesus taught and claimed that he was God. Now, here's the thing that you have to get hold of. To end up 
believing that you're God is hardly a small mistake. It's not the kind of mistake that most people make, is it? Uh, we might know people who are a little bit too big for their boots, their claims are a little bit over their head, but when you're talking about someone who claims to be God, well, that is no small mistake, is it? It's delusions of grandeur to say the very least. You see, the thing is this, that when a man claims to be God, he either is or he's a nutter. If he isn't, he is out of his tree in a mega way. Can you see what I mean? He is really gone. So the point is this, you cannot say of Jesus at one and the same time that he was a good teacher and yet not God. Because Jesus, whether he was right or wrong, and we'll see that in a minute, Jesus, whether he was right or wrong, thoroughly believed and told everyone that he was God. Now, if he was mistaken about that, he was a megalomaniac. He was mad. Can you see? Claims to divinity is no small mistake. You're talking about serious uh, psychiatric aberration, to say the least. So then, Jesus, was he mad? Well, let's ask ourselves, does the life of Jesus, what we know of it, does it bear the marks of a madman? See, why is it that most people, even though they're not Christians, even though they haven't the fullest idea what Christianity even is, they believe that Jesus was a good man, perhaps the greatest man who ever lived. Now the question is how do you tie that in with the idea of Jesus being a madman? Now, some years ago, there was a guy called John Stuart Mill. Now, he was a philosopher and influential in his time, but he wasn't a Christian. And I'm now going to tell you what some very famous, yet ardent, non-Christians have said about Jesus. John Stuart Mill said this, that he was, quote, the greatest moral reformer who ever existed. Rousseau, do you know the name Rousseau? One of the most influential figures today because his philosophy and teaching, albeit quite a long time ago, has had tremendous influence in the thinking of modern man. Now he, talking about Jesus and comparing him to Socrates, says this, and again Rousseau was a non-Christian, alright? He was a total non-Christian. He says this, if the life and death of Socrates were those of a sage, the life and death of Jesus were those of a God. And there's a guy called W.E.H. Lecky, who is one of the greatest recent historians that there's ever lived. Now, he is still tremendously famous and respected. His works stand high. Again, he was a non-Christian. But in his history of European morals, I mean, can you imagine writing a book like that? Well, Lecky decided that he wanted to write the history of European morals. But in it, he says this, remember he's not a Christian, or wasn't a Christian. The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice, and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate 
and so soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and than all the exhortations of moralists. Now here we have it, the almost unanimous verdict of non-Christian thinkers who when they speak of Jesus regard him as the greatest moral being who has ever lived. So we've seen this. Was Jesus mad? Because if he wasn't God and believed he was God, he was wrong. But it's not just a question of making a mistake. He was desperately psychologically ill and deceived. Therefore he was mad. But does his life show madness? In fact, the opposite. He is held up by Christian and non-Christian alike to be the epitome of what a man should be. Now, can you see, therefore, that Jesus wasn't mad at all? Mm. And that it is so ridiculous, it is a wholly untenable position to say that Jesus was a good man and leave it there. He wasn't just a good man. He was either who he said he was, or he was mad out of his tree completely. So then, he's not a myth. We've seen that he couldn't possibly have been mad. There's only one logical possibility left, and it's this, that he was the Messiah. That he was exactly who he said he was. That he was God. That he was the way. That the life he lived clearly bore out that the message that he said about himself was absolutely true. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus was God himself become a man with the sole purpose of dying on the cross so that everyone had a chance to be saved. Now, that makes this the most important issue there is. Everything files into insignificance besides this. If Jesus isn't the Son of God, if the Bible is untrue, if God doesn't exist, any of those things, then it doesn't matter anyway. I've said it so many times before, if we live in an accident, a cosmic accident, millions of years ago, nothing turns into something all by itself. Now you've got more faith than me if you believe that. But just a cosmic accident. No one did it. There's no designer. There's no God behind everything. It's just an accident. Well, let me tell you, if that's true, then nothing matters. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. It's junk. Forget it. Love, goodness, it's all meaningless. They're just ideas that are helping us to get on with our evolution towards greater things. The whole thing is meaningless. But if Jesus is the Messiah, then we have in front of us the most important issue of all. It's the issue of our very eternity. Because what people so often tend to forget... You see, Christians come along and we get called those hellfire Christians. You know, and people think we're rotten because we believe in hell. We believe in judgment. And they say, oh, we're rotten. I mean, look at Jesus. He was a man of love. He was compassion. Not like these Christians. They're rotten. They believe I'm going to burn in the lake of fire. They're rotten. Well, let me tell you, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, the most teaching about hell is from the lips of Jesus. If you cut Jesus' teaching out of the Bible, you would not have any hell or lake of fire. You'd have the odd mention, but it wouldn't make any sense at all. Jesus was the most vociferous hellfire preacher who ever lived. 
Not because he wanted to scare people, but for this simple reason. <coughs> Jesus came to save any who would respond to him in faith and follow him. Now then, it is lunatic to go up to somebody and say they need to be saved if they don't know what they need to be saved from. And a Christianity that merely says you've got to be saved is meaningless unless we tell people what it is they need to be saved from. Yeah. Yeah. Now, can you see that to be a follower of Jesus secures our future for eternity? And what an incredible future that is. Mm -hmm. But to reject Jesus secures an eternity under God's judgment in the lake of fire. Now, can you see, nothing else matters compared to this. Everything else, every other matter, piles into insignificance when you're confronted with the possibility of eternity in the lake of fire. If it's not true, well, nothing matters anyway. But if it is true, it is the single most important issue we face. And Jesus was the one who came so that no one, but no one ever need end up in the lake of fire. That all who believe on Jesus, that anyone who comes to Jesus will be saved, will be given a new life, will receive forgiveness, and will become part of God's family. Now, everything in the Christian faith hinges on one thing. There is one fact in the Bible that if it's not true, the rest of it is, is just absolute piffle. And it's the resurrection of Jesus. Now this is vitally important today because cause a lot of our so-called Christian leaders, and, and they're not Christians at all, tell us that Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. It was a spiritual event. It didn't really actually happen, you see. Now it's vital. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said this, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. And he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we, of all people, are most to be pitied. Because if Jesus isn't alive, if he wasn't raised from the dead, then nothing matters anyway. So why do we live tough lives in submission to him? If we're doing it for nothing. And Paul himself says, we are of most men, we're of all men most to be pitied. Everything hinges on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And what I want to do is to look back quickly in history and to show, you see, a lot of people don't realise that historical facts can be verified. People think that because something happened 2,000 years ago, you can't really know one way or the other. You can. I mean, we go to school and we learn all about the history of our country right back before the Romans came. You know, when the Druids were roaming the land. Well, we don't doubt that. We accept that history, ancient history, can be verified. It's only when you turn to the Bible that people start saying, oh, well, ancient history can't be verified because they don't want it to be true. Let's have a look at the resurrection of Jesus. Let's, let's ask about it. One thing we need to understand is this. Every, all of Jesus' teaching hinged on the fact that he said he was God, that he said he was going to die, and that death wouldn't hold him. Jesus predicted that after being dead for three days, he was going to be raised from the dead. Now, the early church, after Pentecost, when they all got baptised with the Spirit, they went out preaching, all right? And the essence of the message they preached was, Jesus is risen, all right? 
And suddenly the Romans and the Jews, having just disposed of Jesus, having just killed him to get rid of the whole thing, have now got it worse than ever. Because when Jesus was walking on the earth before he was <coughs> killed, he really only had 12 serious followers. Alright? So that wasn't too much of a problem. It was dangerous, so they killed him anyway, just to be sure. But that wasn't too much of a problem. But after Jesus died, they suddenly had thousands on their hands and they were growing all the time. Now we need to understand that at the time of Jesus, at the time of the early church, there were two powers in Palestine. There were the Jewish powers, because Palestine was a Jewish sort of thing. They were all Jews. And their leaders were Jews, and they did not like Christianity. They believed that Jesus was a heretic, all right? even the devil himself. So the Jews, who were one power in Palestine, did not welcome the teaching of Jesus, and certainly did not welcome the early church. They hated it. The other power in Palestine was the Romans. Now, the Romans were occupying rather like the Nazis did France, all right? Now, the Jews hated Jesus in the early church because it upset their religion. The Romans hated Jesus in the early church, but not for the same reason. Not because it upset their religion. I mean, religiously, the Romans were very ecumenical. You could believe what you liked amongst them. As long as you honoured Caesar as Lord, you know, you could believe what you liked. The Romans didn't like social upset, you see, because they were in the business of controlling whole nations. Now, Jesus and the early church brought social instability. So, therefore, the two powers in Palestine at the time, the Jews and the Romans, both hated Jesus, both wanted to dispose of him, and when they managed to do that, the last thing they wanted was a movement of people going around saying, this Jesus is now alive. It was the last thing they wanted. As I say, they put Jesus to death, and he had 12 serious, really serious followers. After they killed Jesus, within a few weeks, there were first hundreds. And before they knew it, there were thousands of them. And they didn't like it. Now, here is the point. There was a way for the Jews and the Romans to get together and to do something that would have stopped Christianity in its tracks completely. There was one simple thing that had they got together and done it, you and I would never have heard the word Christian. We would never have heard the name Jesus unless we happened to specialise in the history of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago because it would have crushed the early church so thoroughly that they would have been stamped out to a man. Now, what was it that the Romans could have done and the Jews could have done? Remember, the essence of the message of the early church was Jesus is alive. The Romans and the Jews together had crucified Jesus. Right. Why did they not show Jesus' dead body in Jerusalem? Now, can you see what I'm saying? If that had happened, the early church would never have been heard of again. Can you see the importance of this? If the Romans and the Jews had hung Jesus' corpse in the middle of Jerusalem, everyone would have known that the early church were wrong. Everyone would have known that Christianity was out of its tree. There'd have been no doubt. And the Romans and the Jews could have got rid of, in one fell swoop, the most dangerous movement that they had going on amongst them. So, the question is this. 
they didn't reveal, they didn't show Jesus' dead body. Obviously, they didn't have the body to show. Alright? So the question we've now got to ask is this. What happened to the body? What happened to the body? Now, there are kind of three things that could explain what happened to the body. Obviously, we know why they didn't have the body. They didn't have it because Jesus needed it, <laughs> right? That's why they didn't have it. But there have been only two other theories put forward to explain why it was that the Romans and Jews didn't come up with Jesus' body. And we've got to have a look at it. The first one I want to look at is what's called the swoon theory. Now, in actual fact, what this says is that when, on the cross, Jesus didn't actually die. He, he, he passed out. He fainted. Alright? They took him down thinking he was dead, bunged him in the tomb, and of course, later, Jesus recovered. Alright? He woke up, came out of his coma, alright? <laughs> and, and of course, off he went. Now then, this would indeed explain why the Romans and the Jews didn't come up with the body. But, let's have a look at this. We know for a fact that Jesus was hanging on the cross with nails through his hands for at least six hours. Alright? He'd been speared in the side. He'd been whipped. He'd been beaten. To such an extent, he was really a mess. Alright? His beard had been plucked out and stuff like that. Horrible. Alright? Whipped, beaten, flogged, you name it. Okay? He then recovers in the tomb. Alright, he wakes up. He finds himself able to move the massive stone that was put over the cave. He then manages to get past the Roman battalion that was posted to guard the grave in case the early church came along and nicked the body and then went around saying Jesus was alive. So Jesus managed to creep past all these Roman soldiers. He moved the stone, he's half dead, Alright, but it's alright, so he's woken up now. But he's half dead, alright, he moves the stone, he kind of, he creeps past all the soldiers so they haven't foggiest idea what's going on, okay? He then finds the disciples and he gets them all together and then manages to, to, to convince them that not only has he been raised from the dead, but he is now glorified, alright? That he is now risen in a glorified body. I mean, the blood's still pouring from his side, it's still... And in that amazingly bad state, Jesus manages to convince them that he was the Son of God and that he'd just raised, been raised from the dead, alright? And they believed him, and so Christianity started from there. Now, I think you'll see that that is patently ridiculous. But, there's another thing as well. If that is what happened, then Jesus is a liar. Can you see that? If that is the truth of it, that Jesus, having come round and then convinces the early church he was raised from the dead when he knew full well he wasn't, that makes Jesus a liar. You see, there you have it again. Does Jesus' life bear out that he was a liar? And the kind of megalomaniac liar who wanted a reputation for being God when he knew he wasn't. Can you see that this first thing, the swoon theory, is, is ridiculous? It cannot begin to explain why the Jews and the Romans didn't present the dead body of Jesus. Now, the more favourite theory, and this is the one that most people go on to, is this, that it's the disciples who stole the body, the disciples nicked the body of Jesus, and then concocted the story that he was raised again from the dead. So they had the body, 
alright, so that the Jews and Romans couldn't present the dead body of Jesus, and then went around telling everyone that Jesus was alive and that they'd seen him, alright. Now then, let's ask ourselves, could that possibly be the case? Well, how could it possibly be the case? Firstly, the body, as we've seen, was guarded by Roman troops. Because in actual fact, the Jews feared this very thing, that an attempt might be made to steal the body of Jesus, and then everyone go around saying he was alive. Because the Jews knew that Jesus predicted he'd come to life again. And they went to Pilate and arranged for the, for the Roman guards to be put on duty. All right. So then, we've got to ask ourselves, the body is guarded by the Roman troops and it's sealed with this giant stone. All right. Now, two days earlier, the disciples had fled in terror and despair. All right? They saw Jesus dying on the cross. They didn't believe that Jesus was going to die. Not really. Not really. They were destroyed and broken men. They fled in terror. All right? They were totally disorganized. And I'll tell you, when 12 men flee in terror, not one of them knows where the others have gone. Can you see what I mean? You might have an idea but no way do you know where the other 11 are. All right, or in fact 10 at this point, because Judas obviously, uh, sorry, 11 of them because Judas had dropped out. Now then, the point is this. They're, they fled in terror, they're totally disorganized. How, how in two days did they manage to get together the courage and the skill of a crack commando elite? who then broke Jesus' body out of the cave without the guards, the Roman guards, even knowing it had happened. And for a Roman guard to fall asleep on duty was a death penalty. Can you see what I mean? Roman guards did not fall asleep on duty. They were put to death if they did. So it's not even a question. I mean, the whole, the whole troop falling asleep, isn't that lucky as the disciples come, oh, they're all asleep, lads. No, it's patently ridiculous. So can you see that no way could this have happened? But let's just suppose it. The disciples, they get together there. I mean, they make the SIS look like a bunch of wallies now, don't they? I mean, <laughs> they get in there and they get out. They got the body of Jesus, all right? They then go around telling everyone that Jesus has been raised from the dead. They know he hasn't been raised from the dead. They know he's dead. They've stashed the body away. But they now go around telling everyone that Jesus is alive and they then begin the greatest, most influential movement in history. Now tell me, could the beginnings of Christianity be explained on the basis of 11 men concocting a lie together? Can you see how ridiculous this is? There are three possibilities three possible reasons that the Jews and the Romans did not present the dead body of Jesus. One, the swoon theory. Oh, we've seen how crazy that is. Two, the disciples stole the body. Well, we've seen how ridiculous that is as well. Alright? The third reason is the only reasonable reason. It was because Jesus was alive. He needed his body. Now then, I ask you this. If Jesus isn't alive, if the Bible is wrong, if Jesus isn't the Son of God, let me ask you this. How do you explain Paul the Apostle? How do you explain a man whom we know from history to have hated the early church with everything he had in him? How do we explain 
that one day, on his way to throw Christians in jail and have them beaten and killed if he possibly could, how do we explain that he sets out on that journey hating Christian Christianity, believing it to be absolutely wrong, believing Jesus to be a satanic fraud, and by the time he gets to the other end, turns into the greatest expositor, the greatest um, communicator of Christianity that has ever lived. A man whom we know to be not a nutter. A man of great intellect, you only have to read his writings. A man whose life attests to the fact he wasn't mad. He lived far too good a life to be mad, like Jesus did. How do you explain Paul the Apostle? Also, how are you going to explain the countless millions of people in the last 2,000 years who call themselves Christians? How do you account for that? If Jesus is long dead, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, how do you account for that? Millions of... I mean, I know that lots of people believing something doesn't mean that it's right. But I'm talking about millions and millions and millions and millions of people all claiming that Jesus is alive, that they've met him. I mean, is this mass hysteria? Well, again, people's lives don't bear out the fact that it's mass hysteria. Let's get really, really, really down to it, nitty-gritty. What about me? And what about those here who know Jesus? I mean, 17 years ago, I'm kind of trundling along. I'm minding my own business, and Jesus reveals himself to me. And he turns my life upside down, all right? And in some ways wrecked it. You see what I mean? He redirected me in a way that has been far harder than the way I was going. Alright? Now, how do you explain that? Am I a nut? Well, I might be, but at least I'm screwed onto the right bolt. But can you see... The rest of you here, are we all mad? Well, can you see... Of course not. The body of Jesus was not available because Jesus needed it. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. So we can see that Christianity is true. We can see that when Trevor and Valerie say that they've become followers of Jesus, we can see that they have done the most reasonable thing. They have responded to that which is clearly and patently true. So given that it's true, we come to... Who remembers Huey Green? We come to... It's make your mind up time, friends. And I mean that most sincerely. Can you see? Jesus is alive. He is the Son of God. And we've already seen that that makes this the single most important issue. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus has died so that each one of us, so that any who follow him can be saved. And they're saved because they realise that they're sinners and they just get it as a free gift. It's just one of the perks... If you follow Jesus, eternal life is the first perk you get. There are lots of others, but that is the perk that you get, a free gift. But because Jesus is Lord, because he is God, because he is the creator, can you not see how despicable it is that we, the mere creatures of God, deny him his rightful place, his rightful place in our lives? When the early church went out preaching, 
Now, it's very, today, evangelism tends to, I mean, we sort of preach, we tell people about Jesus, and then we issue an invitation. We invite them to come to the Lord. That is totally not what the Bible says. When the early church went out, they preached, God commands all men everywhere to repent. You are not invited to have eternal life. You are commanded to have eternal life. Now, you can deny that. You, can, you have free will. You can reject Jesus and you'll take with that eternal damnation if you do. But can you not see that Jesus wants you to have the best thing he can give you? Salvation. And it's already there. You've simply got to draw on it. Now, can you see from what I've said tonight that if you're going to deny Jesus, if you're going to say that Christianity isn't true, then all I can say is, you need greater faith to believe that it's untrue than you do to believe that it's true. Mm. Mm. And it really is time to be sensible. Mm. Jesus is commanding this world to repent and to follow him. Jesus is commanding you to repent and to follow him. And in so doing, it's not that he's kind of taking authority over you because he, he likes to lord it over you. It's not because he fancies himself as big boss. He doesn't. Jesus' idea of big boss was to humble himself and die in your place. Jesus commands you because it's so very, very important to him that you become part of the family. Because he loves you so much. Because he wants you so much. And remember that when Jesus hung on that cross for six hours, dying in our place so that we never had to be condemned, if we follow Jesus, we never need face the judgment of God. But when Jesus was hanging there, it wasn't the nails that held him on that cross. It was his love that held him on that cross. At any time he could have clicked his fingers and angels would have come and lifted him off that cross, healed him instantly. No, Jesus held himself to that cross because he was doing it for the world that he loved so much. Now the question is this, can you, dare you, not receive Jesus as Saviour. Trevor and Valerie have. And tonight, they're going to be baptised. We're dunking them tonight. In the name of Jesus. And they're saying to everyone, and in every one, I don't just mean every person, I mean every angel, and I mean every demon, including the big one himself, including Satan. They are saying, Jesus is Lord, and you are beaten, and you have no more call on my life. Because now, Jesus is my Lord, and Jesus is in charge of me. Now, I mean, what an offer. I've made you an offer that you cannot refuse. And if anyone wants to accept that offer, well, at some point, you just make that clear to us.